and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the devastating fires in Canada that now surround the capital of the northwest province, Yellowknife, that is under an evacuation order. This, following earlier fires in Quebec and Ontario provinces, smoke from which polluted the northeast, as smoke from the current fires is now filling the skies over the Twin Cities in Minnesota and in Chicago. Joining us is Dr. Mike Flanagan, the British Columbia Research Chair for Predictive Services, Emergency Management and Fire Science at Thompson Rivers University. He worked as a meteorologist, then as a physical scientist, research scientist and senior research scientist with the Canadian Forest Service. His primary research interests include fire and weather climate interactions, including the potential impact of climate change, lightning ignited forest fires, landscape fire modelling and interactions between vegetation, fire and weather. Then we'll look into how fossil fuel companies are trying to dismiss a lawsuit before the Hawaii Supreme Court today that charges companies like Chevron for the steep costs of abating damages from extreme weather caused by climate change made apparent by the deadly fires in Maui. Joining us to discuss rights-based environmentalism as a legal, political and moral movement is Amber Polk, a professor of law at Florida International University a legal philosopher with a primary interest in our collective environmental crises. We'll discuss her article at the conversation, The Montana Youth Victory Set a Powerful Precedent for Climate Litigation. Then we'll look into Trump's only path to victory in 2024 and speak with Lawrence Douglas, the James Grossfeld Chair in Law, Jurisprudence and Social Thought at Amherst College and a contributing writer to The Guardian. His latest book is Will He Go?, Trump and the looming electoral meltdown in 2020, and we'll discuss his article at The Guardian, Trump's indictment can't solve the real threat, our undemocratic electoral system. Then finally, we'll investigate the many antiquated anti-democratic tools Republicans are using to further the tyranny of the minority as Biden's diplomatic, judicial and military nominees are being held up by single senators like Rand Paul and Tommy Tuberville. Joining us is Tony Aguilar-Rosenthal, a senior researcher with the Revolving Door Project, where she co-leads their climate and environmental work and is also on their government team on issues related to administrative law, contracting oversight and the Department of Defence. We'll discuss her new report at the Revolving Door Project, Delayed Confirmation of Biden Nominees, Both Common and Costly. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, background briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. 
And joining us now from Canada is Dr. Mike Flanagan, the British Columbia Research Chair for Predictive Services, Emergency Management and Fire Science at Thompson Rivers University. He worked as a meteorologist, then as a physical scientist, research scientist and senior research scientist with the Canadian Forest Service. His primary research interests include fire and weather climate interactions, including the potential impact of climate change, lightning ignited forest fires, landscape fire modelling, and interactions between vegetation, fire, and weather. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Mike Flanagan. Great to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Mike. And you've got fires in British Columbia, and of course, in the northwest province, uh, the capital of Yellowknife is under an evacuation order, and it's very difficult, apparently, because Yellowknife is surrounded by fires, and as people are leaving on the main highway south, they're going through enormous amounts of of choking smoke. So this is a really serious situation, is it not? Absolutely, yes. Yellowknife has about 20,000 residents into the Northwest Territories, and there's only one main road out. You actually have to go north before you go south, because they're on the kind of like the northeast corner of kind of a odd-shaped lake, Great Slave Lake. So you go north for quite a ways before you turn around and go south. But yeah, the one road goes through an area that's burning or recently burned, and the community is surrounded by this ring of numerous fires. And, you know, we lost much of the hamlet of Enterprise, which is also in the Northwest Territories a couple of days ago. Hay Rivers evacuated, Fort Smith, all these are all of the Northwest Territories are evacuated. In Canada, the numbers must be approaching 200,000 people evacuated this year. And we've never seen a year like this. This is uncharted territory. And of course, it's a record-breaking year this year. The area equivalent to the state of New York has burned in Canada this year. And that's almost double the previous modern-day record. So it's, it's a crazy year. And we've, of course, uh, previously there's been series of fires in Ontario and in Quebec provinces, right? Uh, and, of course, the coverage here in the United States is largely about how much smoke is choking America's northeast. And at the moment, Minnesota's Twin Cities and Chicago are getting smoke all the way from the fires surrounding Yellowknife. But for Canada, this is a major blow. So... What is causing this? The the obvious and often announced reason is climate change, but there's perhaps more to it. So, yes, uh, this is consistent with climate change, and attribution studies are starting already, and I'm sure they'll find that climate change is playing a role. This year it started really early with a, a heat wave, a record-breaking heat wave in the northwest, and then the fires spread to Nova Scotia, Quebec. And meanwhile, the West was still burning. Uh, the province of BC, province of Alberta, Quebec, and Nova Scotia, these are all record-breaking years for area burned. Why is this happening? Um, you know, I've been watching fire for over 40 years. And I've never seen such a widespread of active fire area for a long period of time. Basically, almost the entire country, except for parts of the central Canada, were on fire for prolonged periods. I've never seen that. And the other aspect is fire is driven by the extremes. In Canada, 3% of the fires burned, 97% of the area burned. Much of this happens a relatively small number of days, 
of active fire weather, extreme fire weather, hot, dry, windy, we call it. And we've seen more hot, dry, windy days this year than in any other year I can recall. We've done some preliminary analysis, and that, that holds true. And this is also consistent with climate change because we expect more of these what we call spread days, these extreme fire weather days. And we're seeing it in spades this year. So there's been though, an enormous amount of logging in the provinces of Ontario and Quebec, where 50% of the, the forests have been logged. So isn't there a possibility that that's a part of the problem? Because unlogged you know, natural forests uh, tend to be cooler temperatures and damper. But once you do the clear-cutting, it's much more fire-prone, isn't it? So, yeah, um, uh, I think some of your numbers may kind of be misrepresenting um, provinces for Ontario and Quebec. They have intensive areas where they do harvesting and then remote areas where they don't do any harvesting. And it's about 50-50, but in that 50% that they do harvest, it's not all being harvested at this time. There's a rotation system. What's happening during these extreme periods is everything dries out. And so it doesn't really matter if it's a forest or a harvest area, it rips through it. It may rip through faster in the cleared areas than the forested areas, but it's burning across. I mean, and the same can be true of wetlands. You know, wetlands are a great fire break when things are wet, but when things are extreme and droughty, they burn, okay? And it allows the fire to spread across the landscape. So what we're seeing here is, is driven by the extreme fire weather. I mean, we're, we're seeing longer fire seasons. We're seeing more lightning, which we haven't talked about yet, but that's a key component of what's going on here. Many of these fires this year are lightning-caused, and lightning-caused fires are responsible for 80 to 90% of the area burned, and they have been increasing. Area burned in Canada has doubled since the 1970s, due to lightning-caused fires. And with a warmer world, we expect more lightning-caused fires. And probably the key important, the key take-home message here is that as we warm, the atmosphere's ability to suck moisture out of the fuel on the forest floor, that those dead fuels, cured grass, needles, leaves, increases almost exponentially as, as we warm, unless we see more rain, which we're not seeing. So drier fuels, and this is the, one of the key take-home messages, the drier the fuel, easier for fires to start, easier for fires to spread, and more fuel is available to burn, leading to higher intensity fires that are difficult to impossible to extinguish. So just in the last minute then, Mike, is there any solution here? Yes, there's solutions. Um, emergency management has different phases, prevention, mitigation, uh, preparedness, response, and recovery. And fire management are great at response. So there's room for improvement, but prevention and mitigation programs like FireWise in the States, FireSmart in Canada, having emergency management plans for all communities, for all hazards, including fire, floods, earthquakes, flood, you know, the full gamut. We need these things in place. And larger communities, by and large, have them. Smaller communities generally don't because they don't have the resources. You know, human-caused fires are preventable. So things like power line fires can be can be prevented. That may have been the cause of the fire in Maui. Uh, 
there are things we can do. Fire bans, forest closures. Forest closures are very effective for human-caused fires. No industrial activity, no recreational activity. Extremely unpopular, extremely effective, and you only need them for a few critical days during most years. And California has done this in the past, and places in Canada have done it. But you want to do it preemptively before the extreme fire weather comes, not after it occurs. And that's what I mean about we have to be preemptive and be move resources to we, where we expect the extreme fire weather and the new fire starts so that we can deal with them. Because even if things are extreme, hot, dry, windy, you can put the fire out if you get to it while it's small. But once it gets bigger than a football field, and it's hot, dry, and windy, and the fuels are dry, you have a serious problem. So just in closing, what do you do about lightning? You can't do anything about lightning. Now, having said that, though, you know there are three ingredients for a wildfire to occur. Vegetation, the stuff that burns, ignition, people and lightning, and hot, dry, windy weather. I'm arguing that climate change is influencing lightning and hot, dry, windy weather. Now, we can't do anything today about what we see, but by dealing with climate change, and I'll be clear here, human-caused climate change, we can lessen the number of hot, dry, windy days and start to reduce how much lightning as we, as we are warming right now. Well, Dr. Mark Flanagan, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And again, I'll be speaking with Dr. Mike Flanagan, who's the British Columbia Research Chair for Predictive Services, Emergency Management and Fire Science at Thompson Rivers University. He worked as a meteorologist then as a physical scientist, research scientist and senior research scientist with the Canadian Forest Service. His primary research interests include fire and weather climate interactions, including the potential impact of climate change, lightning ignited forest fires, landscape fire modelling and interactions between vegetation fire and weather. We're going to take a restation break and back looking into how fossil fuel companies are trying to dismiss a lawsuit before the Hawaii Supreme Court today that charges companies like Chevron for the steep costs of abating damages from extreme weather caused by climate change made apparent by the deadly fires in Maui. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Amber Polk, who's a professor of law at Florida International University, a legal philosopher with a primary interest in our collective environmental crises. Her research focuses on rights-based environmentalism as a legal, political, and moral movement. And she has an article at The Conversation, The Montana Youth Victory Set a Powerful Precedent for Climate Litigation. Welcome to Background Briefing, Amber Polk. Thank you for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Amber. And today, before the Hawaii Supreme Court, eight major fossil fuel companies are on trial, but they're trying to dismiss a lawsuit that charges companies like Chevron for the steep costs of abating damages from extreme weather caused by climate change made apparent by the deadly fires 
in Maui. So I guess the timing for the plaintiffs is pretty powerful. But this is a part of a pattern, isn't it? Particularly following the Montana youth victory on Monday. Yeah, so this is, I think, um, you know, the result of several years of, we can say, innovative litigation work. I think some of this climate litigation started with the Juliana youth climate case that had worked its way through the federal court system in the late 20 teens. Um, it's currently sitting back in front of the judge in the District of Oregon um, on remand from the Ninth Circuit. Uh, they have an opportunity to amend their complaint there. So that case is still, it's, it, we'll say, recently revived. Um, but this Montana climate case is really a huge, huge victory. Um, this is a, you know, a case where um, the judge found that these constitutional environmental rights, which Hawaii has a constitutional environmental right to a clean and healthy environment um, as well, um, you know, they include a right to a stable climate, um, a climate, you know, that is not destabilized uh, due to climate change. The trick with these cases is figuring out how to hold um, climate change causers and government actions that promote climate change accountable. In Montana, what you actually have here is you have a state legislature that enacted state policies that promoted fossil fuel extraction. Montana is a uh, fossil fuel um, resource economy. That's a large part of their, their state economy is, is fossil fuel extraction. Um, and the, the Montana legislature also basically, you know, hamstrung the Department of Environmental Quality in Montana, all of the agencies from considering greenhouse gas emissions and climate impacts when they review these industrial projects, right? The Montana Environmental Protection Act requires um, that the state agencies undertake environmental review of extraction projects, mining projects, um, fossil fuel um, development, wastewater treatment plants, all these types of industrial projects, they have to be reviewed for their environmental impacts. Uh, and you have a, a state legislature who's going to hamstring the agencies in conducting this review, uh, basically telling the agencies that climate change is not a basis upon which they could um, reject a permit for a new mine, for example, or a new um, coal um, project or a coal plant in, in Montana. And so that's really what the youths were challenging in the Montana case. As far as I know, the Hawaii case is a, is a little bit different because here you have, um, you know, Hawaii, the, the government is trying to find accountability for the, you know, against the oil majors. Right? The oil majors are the ones who have driven the climate crisis. Um, so it's a, it's a lot of in, innovative um, frontier, uh, the edge of the frontier for climate litigation, but it's very exciting to see that the right to stable climate is included in this right to a clean and healthy environment. That's what we get from Montana. Um, and the judge struck down 
ultimately the state uh, law that hamstrings the agencies doing their environmental reviews on these projects. So climate change is now uh, something that those agencies can consider. They could deny a permit based on climate impacts. This has occurred in Hawaii. So the Hawaii Public Utilities Commission, which oversees electricity for the state, uh, is turning down um, agreements to bring in uh, carbon-intensive energy now on the Hawaii uh, constitutional environmental rights. So there are a lot of ways in which these green amendments are being invoked, uh, especially now in the climate change space. It's uh, very fast-paced, very innovative. Uh, It's an exciting victory. So some of the litigants in Hawaii are saying that this lawsuit is about deception. It alleges that the companies are engaged in deceptive practices within Hawaii. And then they go on to say that there are two complementary strategies. One says you've got to get the government to stop backing policies that actually accelerate climate change. And the other strategy says that one of the reasons that the, that the big fossil fuel companies do what they're doing is because they can influence uh, the industry by lying and swaying public opinion. Yeah, so um, I don't have much to add to that, I don't think. Um, right. I think... But yeah, it's, it, it's, it's before the Supreme Court judges, as we speak, they're, uh, because of the time difference, they're still looking over it today in Hawaii, but you can't help feeling, though, Amber, that in the background there's the horror that just happened in Maui where they're talking now that there could be up to a 1,000 casualties, people burned alive, and it turns out that the likelihood that they've only found 100 people so far, that the likelihood of more bodies will be that children at home without their parents at that time were the ones that weren't given any orders. And so many, if not most of the casualties might well be young children. Absolutely. I, you know, I, when I saw the devastation of the recent wildfires in Hawaii, I had, I actually had the thought, I was like, how do you, how do you use the green amendment in Hawaii um, because this is this wildfire. I mean, this is climate change. This is climate change. It's real. It's here. It's on ground level. Um, you know, the youth plaintiffs in Montana talk about their injuries from climate change. It's nothing like what happened in Hawaii. Uh, and so, you know, one wonders where the state is and where the government is in terms of protecting these environmental rights. Uh, on the part of their constituents, you know, how a particular case is formulated. And it sounds to me like this, um, this current case to hold the oil majors uh, accountable, you know, is being brought by a government um, against uh, private industry. You know, how you formulate that case, the theory of the case, um, they've done it, you know, on deception um, and, engaged in deceptive practices within Hawaii. So it sounds like maybe this is some sort of business consumer fraud case almost. Um, but there's, uh, there's something to be said that these companies, right, part of their deception has resulted in massive violations of our, you know, Hawaii's 
Hawaiians, Montanans, Pennsylvanians, Illinoisans, Massachusetts, um, constitutional environmental rights to a clean and healthy environment. You know, the trick is, is figuring out how to, how to formulate the case. Well, of course, <laughs> one of the problems is that some of these oil companies, like Chevron, have been engaged in what they call greenwashing. And they're, they're claiming that, oh, no, we don't uh, deny the existence of climate change. It's real and it's human caused. But, of course, they've taken a long time coming to that position. Well, let's, let's, yeah, I mean, they, they've gotten away with at least three generations of, of manipulating and um, deceiving the public about uh, fossil fuels' role in uh, climate change and global warming, at least. Right. So when Chevron's attorney, Ted Boutrous, speaking for all of the defendants in the suit before the, the Hawaii Supreme Court, said that climate change is an exceedingly important issue of utmost public concern, you're not necessarily buying that. Oh, no. Oh, no. Um you know, it's strategic. So, so it's strategic for these companies, right? Um, they spent decades, um, business as usual. Um, let's doubt science. Let's, let's sow the seeds of doubt. You know, we're not sure climate change is happening. We're not sure it's uh, attributable to fossil fuel emissions um, and fossil fuels more generally um, in that. Uh, we're not sure. Let's let's spend some decades sowing seeds of doubt in the public. Um, and now that the tides have turned, you know that the public is is living climate change. I mean, you know these the wildfires that have occurred. I mean, you're talking about like the Paradise fires that killed a lot of people in California. Currently, Oregon has like unbreathable air because of wildfires. You've got a unbelievable tragedy in Hawaii. And this is just, I mean, we're just talking about wildfires. What about the tornadoes that have torn through, you know, the the Midwest and the Southeast? You have the hurricanes that have come through and devastated, right? Katrina, you had the devastated New Orleans, you have Harvey that devastated Houston, Sandy that took out New York, right? It's almost like we've forgotten about these. And it's not that it's not that these things don't happen as part of what would be a you know pre-industrial climate of the planet. It's that they occur all the time now. It's every year we're hearing it's the hottest year on record, right? This past July was the hottest July on record by a long shot, right? Globally speaking, and and we're not even. And this is just talking about the United States. You want to start talking internationally about you know issues of justice globally. You've got heat waves in India that are killing hundreds of people um, all summer long, right? So, of course, the, like we care about climate change now. Why do the oil majors care now? Well, because the public finally sees it, right? The academics and the and the people who have been pushing, the advocates who have been saying climate change is real, climate change is here for years. They finally made progress. The public sees it. The public is living it, right? And big oil says, well, 
hey, if we're all going to go to renewables, let's go make money there, right? That's part of it. They see that, that, that the court of public opinion has, the tides have changed against them, right? So they're going to act like they care about that. But what do they really care about? It's, it's the next place to invest. Renewable energy is, is going to be a booming market, right? It's going to pay dividends. We have to go to renewables, right? So they'll, you know, they're going to get as much as they can out of fossil fuels while simultaneously getting as much as they can out of the new renewable market. That's just how how that how they work. Well, Amber Polk, I thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was great talking with you. Likewise. And again, I've been speaking with Amber Polk, who's a professor of law at Florida International University, a legal philosopher with a primary interest in our collective environmental crises. Her research focuses on rights-based environmentalism as a legal, political, and moral movement. And she has an article at The Conversation, The Montana Youth Victory Sets a Powerful Precedent for Climate Litigation. And joining us now is Lawrence Douglas, the James Grossfield Chair in Law, Jurisprudence and Social Thought at Amherst College and a contributing opinion writer to The Guardian U.S. His latest book is Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Electoral Meltdown in 2020. And he has an article at The Guardian, Trump's Indictment Can't Solve the Real Threat, Our Undemocratic Electoral System. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lawrence Douglas. Always a pleasure to speak with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Lawrence. And it should be clear to everybody that uh, Donald Trump is running for president again, and he's running to become president via the Electoral College, not via the popular vote. There's no way in the world that Trump will do better than he did in 2016, where he was three million short in the popular vote to Hillary Clinton, but net, nevertheless captured the the Electoral College. And then in 2020, he was almost 8 million short of Joe Biden in the popular vote. And Joe Biden only won the presidency because, unfortunately, you have to win the presidency via the Electoral College. He only won the presidency by 44,000 votes in the three swing states of Arizona, Wisconsin, and Georgia. So it's no accident that Georgia is at the center of Trump's electoral wars. And, uh, of course, now with these new indictments from the DA in Atlanta, it couldn't be more clear. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was certainly a logic to targeting uh, Georgia. It's uh, very, very difficult to make uh, nearly 8 million votes uh, go away. It's not that difficult to make a combined 44,000 votes go away in three separate states. And we know that the margin of victory in Georgia was a little under 12,000 votes, which is exactly why uh, he tried to intimidate and coerce the Georgian Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, to produce him whatever, 11,870 votes or 871, whatever, one more needed uh, to overcome the uh, small margin of victory that Biden enjoyed in that state. And the deeper point, of course, is that this uh, sort of um, anachronistic, archaic, dysfunctional, and really dangerous electoral college system that we have is sort of hard to get rid of. Uh, it would require a constitutional amendment to get rid of it. And there have been numerous, numerous efforts over American history to do so. 
But our Constitution, uh, one of the defects we could say in the Constitution itself is it's simply too hard to amend. Well, there is the interstate compact um, that a number of states have signed on to, which is an end run around a constitutional amendment, which, of course, is a very high bar. But right. Republican states are not cooperating, not surprisingly. Yeah. And maybe we should explain to your listeners exactly what that compact is. So the idea is that right now, the way the Electoral College works in virtually every state, 48 of the 50 states, is that the statewide winner of the popular vote uh, receives all Electoral College votes of that state. Uh, the idea of this compact is to substitute the statewide winner for the nationwide winner. So if uh, whatever uh, candidate wins the nationwide popular vote, the state, regardless of the outcome in the state, would pledge all its electoral college votes to the nationwide popular vote winner. And that would be an end run. And I think states representing, I think, 204 of the 270 electoral college votes necessary for a victory have already signed on to it. The problem, as you pointed out, Ian, is getting those last 66 electoral states representing 66 electoral college votes to sign on. Very difficult to do because those states are, in a sense, beneficiaries of the present system. And the other problem is it's hard. It's not clear how you would enforce that compact. Um, so it's a nice idea. I'd love to see it succeed. But it's certainly not going to be in place to save us from any potential disaster in 2024. Well, there could be a, a real looming disaster in 2024 in the form of a third-party spoiler known as No Labels, which is being organized by Mark Penn and his wife. And Mark Penn, he's basically a Republican operative, a fixture on Fox News. He did work for Clinton and for Obama, but He's apparently very bitter towards Democrats and also sees an opportunity to make a lot of money. And they are getting on the ballot in Arizona and they're going after Wisconsin, Georgia uh, and other swing states. So they're serious. And of course, they will essentially, in terms of the 44,000 votes that Trump needed to win in 2020, the reason those 44,000 people voted for Biden were that the, for the first time, these Republicans in these state who were disaffected by Trump held their nose and voted for a Democrat, which is hard in our tribal system. But they did it. But now the no labels is giving them an, an alternative that you don't have to hold your nose and vote for a Democrat if you're a disaffected Republican that can't vote for Trump you can vote for no labels, uh, which is essentially a vote for Trump. Exactly. I mean, one of the other uh, dysfunctional aspects of our electoral system is that third party candidates really have no uh, real chance of winning. The only effect they have is as a spoiler. And we saw that, you know, very dramatically in the 2000 election where uh, Ralph Nader peeled away thousands of votes from, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of votes away from um, from Al Gore. And recall, recall that uh, George W. Bush won the presidency by a margin of 537 votes in Florida. 
And we wouldn't be worrying about the 537 votes in Florida if Nader wasn't part of the election, peeling away thousands and thousands of votes from uh, Al Gore. And, you know, other countries have dealt with this issue by having runoffs. That is, um, the top two can- uh, top two candidates um, then have a runoff election, which then eliminates the possibility of the spoiler effect because it just takes the third party out in the second round of the election. And unfortunately, we don't have anything like that. Well, the reason that I think you can be sure that No Labels is a spoiler campaign designed to help Trump is that it's the big, rich uh, Republican donors like Sheldon Adelson's widow, Miriam, who are funding it, along with other right-wing dark money interests. So I can't imagine they're funding it because they've <laughs> their political independence when they're clearly supporters of Trump, and by extension, Netanyahu as well. Yes, no, exactly. I mean, it's also possible that you'll have these uh, progressive figures like Cornell West uh, trying to run for, for president in November 24 to get on the ballot. And again, that's someone who could peel away votes from uh, Biden, crucial uh, votes from uh, Joe Biden. So again, this spoiler effect, it's its very dangerous and it's unfortunate that our system hasn't created the kind of mechanisms that we see in France uh, that is a, a kind of second round runoff between the top candidates to insulate the system from precisely this type of damage. So given that this is what Trump's strategy is for 2024 to win the Electoral College and the problems that we just mentioned with the third party spoiler operation that's going to help Trump, what is the alternative here? But a massive turnout, Biden was almost 8 million votes more than Trump in 2020. If he got 10, 20 million more votes, it still wouldn't change the Electoral College, right? You're still down to those key swing states. There's no way around it, is there? That That's exactly right. And the other thing we should bear in mind, in addition to the danger that's, uh, that's posed by these uh, third-party spoilers, is also the continuing effort of these MAGA zealots to uh, intimidate election workers in these states and to continue to insist that the electoral processes in those states are uh, corrupt, uh, when we know, of course, that they functioned perfectly fairly, in fact, kind of exceptionally well in the 2020 election. And uh, and that remains a, a continuing danger. Uh, you find election officials resigning, these independent election officials, we should bear in mind, many of whom in 2020 were Republicans, you know, people who took their jobs seriously and refused to uh, to kowtow or to submit to the intimidation of these MAGA Trumpian zealots. But uh, it becomes incredibly important to vigilantly make sure that the elections, that the votes are, are properly counted in, the, in those states, especially when the margins uh, could be so slim. So just in the last couple of minutes, then, not only are the MAGA zealots attacking American democracy, and uh, they've, as you mentioned, they've targeted election workers, and Stephen Bannon has a program to get MAGA people 
into both on school boards and into the elec election offices across the country. And But there's something else that's happening now that's sort of in your wheelhouse, Lawrence, as a professor of law and jurisprudence, that they're now attacking the law in this country itself. And so all you've got is a flawed democracy and the rule of law. And they're going after our flawed democracy and exploiting its weaknesses through the Electoral College. But they're also going after the rule of law now by publishing the home addresses of the people in the Atlanta, Georgia grand jury who are now being harassed by MAGA zealots. And, you know, citizens, American citizens who sit on juries, they, tr they try not to be uh, partisan. They try to do their job as American citizens. So the fact that these regular folk down there in Georgia were a part of a grand jury, the evidence was presented to them, and then they acted on the evidence, and they indicted Trump and 18 others, and now they're getting punished. And people aren't going to want to be on juries. And I mean, I think this this is really serious stuff that's going on. This this is attacking the very heart of what makes our rule of law work in this country. That's absolutely right. I mean, it's it's really disgraceful, and uh, obviously it's coming from Trump himself. I mean, we've seen that Trump, um, you know, not uh, surprisingly, is attacking the prosecutors, attacking the judges. Um, but um, also, as you pointed out, attacking, uh, basically uh, having his supporters target the people who are um, going after, or not going after him, but weighing the evidence against him and returning indictments. And, you know, it, it sounds like nothing short of what we uh, associate with uh, organized crime, where these uh, organized crime syndicates um, you know, were intimidate witnesses, intimidate jurors, buy off jurors. And uh, this is not happening from some uh, even, you know, relatively powerful organized crime. This is coming from the upper reaches of, you know, this in a sense a person seeking the highest office of, of the nation. And it is uh, exactly as you point out, it's kind of this um, double pronged attack on the electoral system and the democratic process and then on the judicial system and the legal process. And it's, it's dangerous. Well, Lawrence Douglas, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Uh, my pleasure. Again, it's always a pleasure talking with you. Well, thank you, Lawrence. And again, I've been speaking with Lawrence Douglas, who's the James Grossville Chair in Law, Jurisprudence and Social Thought at Amherst College and a contributing writer to The Guardian. His latest book is Will He Go? Trump in the Looming Electoral Meltdown in 2020. And he has an article at The Guardian, Trump's Indictment Can't Solve the Real Threat, Our Undemocratic Electoral System. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into Trump's only path to victory in 2024. And we'll also investigate the tyranny of the minority as Biden's diplomatic, judicial and military nominees are held up by single senators like Rand Paul and Tommy Tuberville.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Tony Aguilar-Rosenthal, who's a senior researcher with the Revolving Door Project, where she co-leads their climate environmental work and also works on their governance team on issues related to administrative law, contracting, oversight, and the Department of Defense. She has a new report at the Revolving Door Project, Delayed Confirmation of Biden Nominees, Both Common and Costly. Welcome to Background Briefing, Tony Aguilar-Rosenthal. Hey, and thanks so much for having me. Really glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Tony. And finally, we have a U.S. ambassador in Niger, a country that has just undergone a coup, and the neighborhood organization ECOWAS is threatening to send a military force there, and there's a kind of a standoff. And finally, U.S. Ambassador to Tunisia Kathleen Fitzgibbon has now been confirmed, but she'd been held up forever at the time of the coup by none other than Senator Rand Paul, who has put a hold on a whole bunch of diplomatic nominees by the State Department based upon his belief that the White House is holding intelligence that he believes could show that the COVID-19 leaked from a Chinese lab. So this is a common practice for Rand Paul. But how widespread is this? I mean, how much are we being denied the people on the ground in in areas of the world where there's a crisis as there is now in Niger? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, this is a common practice for for Rand Paul and you know his arbitrary blockade on on the con- confirmation of State Department appointees uh, specifically right now, but extends well beyond both Paul and also the staff of the State Department alone, and has this sort of crisis in confirmations has really been a crisis for years now with. A, a sort of anti-democratic abuse of antiquated procedures uh, being pursued by a small number of people who primarily themselves are members of the Senate's minority party in order to deny the public the basic functionality of the federal government, be it in ambassadorships and the staffing of embassies, but also regarding um, the staffing of crucial regulatory bodies in the independent agencies. It's a very, very widespread issue. So this is really then an example of a broader issue of minority rule. In other words, you have a majority, mm-hmm. a Democratic majority running the Senate and a, and a Republican majority running the House, but the Senate is being thwarted by these holes from Rand Paul, as we've just discussed. And of course, Tommy Turberville is holding up the higher level officers in the uh, Pentagon. And that is another issue which we want to talk about. So is that the context then, that this is, again, the Republicans operating, in effect, the tyranny of the minority, where they don't have the majority, but they are able to exercise majority control through these antics and tactics? Yeah, I think it definitely is. I mean, I think that it is a manipulation of of Senate rules and procedures that are for in a process that is also admittedly itself broken and has been for a really long time, is the confirmations process in its entirety is a really tedious one in the United States. Um, 
and just applies to so many people and so many positions across the staffing of the federal government that and and is just such a tedious and time-consuming one that has that lends itself well to sort of like bad faith abuses by Republicans at this moment, you know, seeking to undermine the basic functionality of the government and also to undermine the president and in the implementation of his agenda. But in the context of a of a broader process that is in desperate need of reform. Well, it's also uh, affecting the Senate Judiciary Committee because these blue slips, which are another antiquated Senate tradition like the holes, mean that Biden's not getting all the judges confirmed that he wants. And of course, we know that Trump was able to confirm a lot of judges, all handpicked by Leonard Leo and the Federalist Society, including three Supreme Court justices. And Biden is playing catch up, but now it's slowing down because of blue slips. And for some reason or other, the chairman of the the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, Dick Durbin, sort of dithers a lot and doesn't really want to get rid of blue slips, although everybody's piling on, including House Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries, saying they've just got to scrap these blue chips and get people uh, on the federal bench. So I take it blue slips are another example of of what you're talking about uh, here, Tony. Absolutely, yeah. Blue slips are uh, absolutely an asymmetric political tool through which Republicans have found a way to arbitrarily deny Democratic administrations qualified nominees for the judiciary in particular, but also for things like U.S. attorneys' offices that are also really crucial in to have staffed and to have staffed with people who are, you know, who share the president's policy positions and policy visions. And the, what's so frustrating, I think, about the blue slip process in particular, but also so many of the contexts which surround confirmations issues broadly, is that like they're, this is an entirely solvable issue it's blue slips do not are not mandated by the law and like and blue slips could just be uh the the blue slips process could be reformed the blue slips process could be rejected and yet democrats led by dick durbin as you were saying earlier have so far proven themselves relatively unwilling to do uh, to engage with these issues in any way um and to actually look towards what they can do to solve these problems with um, both the majority that they hold in Senate chambers, but also in terms of changing their relationship to these arcane and antiquated procedures that have no place in, in, in the modern Senate. So just back to the ambassadorial nominees that are being held up largely by Rand Paul, but others as well, I take it. Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and Tom Cotton and Pat Toomey have also abused this process. There's a really critical need to get a U.S. ambassador to Turkmenistan because Turkmenistan Mm -hmm. is a methane super emitter, right, that emits more methane from fossil fuel fields, outstripping the entire emissions of the United Kingdom per year. Mm Mm-hmm. There's still there's still dozens of ambassador uh, ambassadorial nominees who who are awaiting Senate confirmation and who have had their 
uh, nominations held up for months by by Rand Paul and by uh, similar confirmation blockades. And when there are not confirmed staff on, when it comes to ambassadorship specifically, it is so crucial for those leaders to be confirmed representatives of the United States, because when there's acting or there's career diplomats filling those positions abroad, they do not carry the same weight or institutional legitimacy that is really crucially necessary in representing uh, U.S. interests abroad. And in the case of Turkmenistan, in trying to negotiate right now the these broader issues of crucially needed and, and desperately necessary methane reductions, um, it's it's quite nerve-wracking, in a sense, to not have an officially confirmed U.S. ambassador as part of those talks. So we mentioned earlier what Tommy Turberville is doing at the Defense Department, and I think there's over 300 high-level appointments languishing, which are affecting the armed forces now that I think two of the branches of the armed forces don't have confirmed Mm -hmm. um, heads right at this moment. And the democratic strategy is to basically uh, have Schumer trying to get his Republican colleagues to deal with Tuberville, but it's not happening. Mm -hmm. So meanwhile, the Pentagon is getting more and more paralyzed. So is there a time when the Democrats will change their strategy? I mean, is there anything else they can do? Because clearly expecting Mitch McConnell to do something is not working. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot that Democrats can do. This problem, as many are, is absolutely a fixable one and has been forever. Democrats, because they hold a majority in Senate chambers, could simply change the rules, could change the rules surrounding confirmations in order to streamline and modernize the confirmations process, while also still ensuring that senators have the uh, important and crucial opportunity to conduct oversight on presidential nominations, uh, but while also acknowledging the fact that these sort of blockades are absolutely an anti-democratic tool meant to do nothing other than uh, sabotage Senate floor time and to sabotage the, the federal government. And so using a parliamentary procedure, which is known colloquially as the nuclear option, Democrats in the Senate could simply amend the standing rules with just a majority vote to do things like capping the amount of time allowed for for debate for certain classes of nominees. Uh, They could end the the mandatory delays built into the confirmation system that makes it such a time-consuming process. Or they could do things like allow for the grouping of nominees across a set number of debatable hours in order to both honor that need for for oversight while also streamlining the process. And the Senate has done uh, has achieved similar rule changes before, um, both in in 2013 and in in 2019 and in 2019. And so it very much could do it again. Um, but yeah, Democrats so far have have just not tried to um, and have instead really attached themselves to to this almost unyielding commitment to a sense of decorum and cordiality that that translates to to almost just never rocking the boat in any sense 
even when it's a vote that the Republican Party so clearly and for so long has abandoned. Um, and while Chuck Schumer has defaulted to this this position of, of attempting to get uh, Repu- Republicans to hold other Republicans accountable to playing fairly by the rules, uh, that hasn't worked and likely isn't going to. And at a, at a certain point, I, it's enough just has to be enough. And, and Democrats should do what is well within their power to protect the interests of democracy in our governing bodies and to make the rules more fair while they maintain a majority in that chamber. And they're barely holding a majority because of Senator Feinstein. So yeah. they better move while they can. So I thank you for joining us, uh, Tony. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And again, I've been speaking with Tony Aguilar-Rosenthal, who is a senior researcher with the Revolving Door Project, where she co-leads their climate and environmental work and also works on their governance team on issues related to administrative law, contracting oversight, and the Department of Defense. And she has a new report at the Revolving Door Project, Delayed Confirmation of Biden Nominees, Both Common and Costly. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by